This is Brian Levine, former Disneyland train conductor, wishing you all board for Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 42 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. I've been looking forward to this episode number because it's my favorite number, and fellow Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fans will understand why. Now in this episode, we pick up with part two of a three-part interview with Brian Levine. In case you missed or don't remember the previous episode, here's a quick refresher. Basically, if you've been to Disneyland, well, ever, you've seen and probably ridden at least one of the attractions he worked, the Disneyland Railroad and the Main Street Vehicles. These have always fascinated me, so I was very excited to talk to Brian. I hope you enjoyed part one, and I'm sure you did, so I know you'll feel the same about part two. Now in this episode, Brian talks about his part in a special retirement gift for a fellow Main Street cast member, a fellow cast member's memories of Walt Disney himself, driving former Walt Disney Company President Frank Wells on the omnibus, the involvement of the Main Street vehicles with Club 33 parties. I had no idea about this one. I thought it was really interesting. Being in the park at night after it closed. A great, sweet, and fun story from his time on the Omnibus, and well beyond. His involvement with the Disneyland Alumni Club and Disney legend Van France. His dad's involvement with Disney, CalArts, and Disneyland. The one fun thing that would happen at the parking lot toll booth and some great memories of being a guest at Walt Disney World. This section makes it part cast member guest interview and part listener feedback as he shares stories of some special things cast members did for his family. And now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story. Hi, this is Rick Moyer. And this is Amy Moyer. And we are the hosts of Take Him With You. The weekly podcast where we discuss life at the geeky Moyer's home. And then we talk about our faith and how it relates to the world around us. Very, very positive podcast. And we think you really enjoy it. And I love Star Trek and heavy metal music. And I like... Star Trek kind and of. heavy metal music. And I hate heavy metal music. <laughs> Want to hear more of our banter? You can by listening to our podcast. Where can they find it? You can find it at takehimwithyou.com or iTunes. That's right, iTunes. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. That was my introduction to the blast to the past, but it sounds like it definitely had some interesting and some fun pieces to it, even if they were a bit unorthodox. I think there was a sand beach party that they brought in a bunch of sand and put it out in the uh, the area out in front of Small World, and so they had a sand beach out there and 
something. They had a, a Jan and Dean style Beach Boys kind of style band back there, and they <laughs> tried a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah, I enjoyed driving those cars up and down the street. That was just fun. Oh yeah, I can only imagine. That would be great. Um, now you mentioned, I think that you worked at the park there for four and a half years. Yeah, from June of '86 until uh, late September of '90. Okay, and as I understand it, you had a an interesting or or kind of a unique uh, retirement gift that you got when you when that four and a half years ended. I didn't get it, but this is one of those moments in my life that I will never forget, and I'm glad I kept pursuing it because on Main Street there was a, a fellow cast member named Ralph Hansen who started working at Disneyland in 1959 on the carousel uh, was a was a young college student at that point left the park for a couple of years in the mid 60s but then became a full-time teacher and came back to the park and worked as you know, weekends and summers during the during the school year and worked there until 1989 so he really been there the better part of a good solid 30 years and Ralph was one of those guys that had wonderful stories and told them really well Ralph would always take his breaks he towards the last five years of his time at Disneyland he was always on Main Street vehicles and that's where I really got to know him but he would always take his breaks in front of the security office which was right behind the Bank of America, or what is now the Disney Gallery on Main Street. Mm -hmm. And I never understood why he always took his breaks there until I finally asked him, I said, you know, Ralph, every time I see you, you're taking your break over here. He said, why? He said, well, if you go inside security, they've got free coffee. Everywhere else, you have to pay for coffee. <laughs> and That's clever. So out in front of security were these two old park benches that had been used out in the park and they had just put them there for people that were waiting for security or whatever just the just as a place to sit outside and there was an ashtray there and ralph would go inside get his cup of coffee come out have his smoke and then he'd go back to work and that was ralph's routine for all of his breaks and then his lunch was go over get lunch come back get his free cup of coffee and go sit down there and smoke so when he was getting ready to retire, they were going to throw – there was a whole big hubbub of what to get Ralph for his retirement and you know this, that, and the other. And they were throwing a party for him at the old Tahitian Terrace. Uh, the park was – I think Ron Dominguez was there and uh, uh, Jim Cora, a couple of the other big wigs were going to be there. And I had thought – and I went to my direct supervisor about what if we could get them to get the park to give Ralph one of these – park benches that he's been sitting on for as long as I've known him, sitting out in front of security. They're all beat up. They're banged up. You know, they're not refurbished or anything. And my supervisor said, oh, no, you're crazy. Yeah, we can't. We can't do that. You can't give them park property. Okay. Well, I'd gotten to know a guy named Bob Galt, and Bob was one of the VPs of operations just from my exposure and time being around Main Street where his office was. And he was a uh, one of the more aggressive VPs, and he still works for the company. I believe he does all the uh, 
all the preview and uh, special events for Walt, for Disney Studios. Um, so I happened to see him walking by one time, and I said, hey, "Bob, can I ask you a question? Because I've got no regard for for going up the direct ladder or whatever." <laughs> I said, "Bob, I was thinking about this idea for Ralph's retirement, and here's the idea." But I had mentioned it to. John, who I think was the supervisor at that time, and John said no, and Bob said, you know, that sounds like a good idea. I'll get back to you. And two days later, I get a phone call in the Main Street office from Bob Galt directly for me, and everybody's a little nervous about why he's calling for me because I'm so far off of the totem pole that I don't, you know, I couldn't see the next layer of dirt above me. That's how far down the totem <laughs> pole I am from Bob Galt. The message is to stop by his office, and I go by his office, and his secretary says, yeah, Bob said yes, but here's the deal. Here's the property pass for the for the bench, but you guys have to get the bench from security over to the Tahitian Terrace, and you have to get it from the Tahitian Terrace over to Ralph's house. <laughs> no Disney vehicles or, or, or people on the clock can be used for it. Okay, great. <laughs> So we do that, and it's the last thing. It's covered on the back of, uh, it's covered up on the back of the stage, and uh, uh, Ron Dominguez says yeah, he's given the presentations, and he says, "Finally, I've got this gift for you, Ralph, and I think it knows a part of your anatomy better than your wife does." <laughs> and Ralph had been given little miniature fire trucks and a couple of other little goodies from Main Street and some stuff like that and then they pulled the tarp off of this park bench that was one of the two benches out in front of security and that's when he broke down in tears was when he saw the bench uh, mm. and we finished up the you know, we finished up the event there and then three of us carried this bench and these benches are if you've ever tried to move a Disneyland park bench, give it a good lift. I mean, they're meant to not move. But three of us carried it across the, across Main Street and back down to one of the guy's pickup trucks, and then we all drove home. And there's a one of my favorite pictures is me and Ralph and three other guys from Main Street that were all involved in this sitting on that park bench in Ralph's backyard as we had delivered it to his house. <laughs> uh, wow. I still talk to Ralph every couple of months. Uh he's in his early 90s now and still spends most mornings sitting. He's had the bench refurbished and painted to match the backyard of his house, but uh he still spends most mornings out there with his cup of coffee and sitting out on that park bench. Hmm. That is by far my favorite memory from my time working at Disneyland. Yeah, I can understand why that would be. Clearly, I hadn't done my homework quite properly, but that's okay because it was still a really good story. And doesn't matter how it was set up, you know, it was good to hear. It's not something that you hear of too much. Ralph, what'd you get for your retirement from Disneyland after 30 some odd years? We gave you this beat up old bench that you've been sitting on all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, he had a beat-up old Volkswagen Beetle that he used to drive, and a couple of people put some decorations on it for his last day. But <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he was definitely well-loved there. He, he was one of the guys that I actually knew that and was able to talk to while I worked there that had met Walt a couple of times. 
and you know, had some Walt stories. Uh, so he was my connection to Walt while I was working there because everybody else that I had met uh, or knew at that point had been uh, had been moved had moved on you know, or hadn't hadn't been there since Walt was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph was my few Walt stories. Uh, Ralph remembers Walt coming into the park on a Sunday with the daughters and just walking up and handing him handing him tickets to get onto the carousel. So you don't need tickets. I know who you are. Here they are anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to follow the rules, even if they don't technically need to. Yeah. Or Ralph would tell me that Walt would always say hi to you and ask ask how you were. Wanted to know what you what you thought. And he'd he'd had a you know, maybe five or six conversations with Walt in the in the years that he was there. Hmm. Especially since working Saturday and Sunday, you'd see you'd see Walt in the park more often on Saturday and Sunday than any other day. Right, that makes sense. Uh, he used to like how hmm. the supervisors would all scurry the minute they heard Walt was in the park. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We did the same thing when we knew that Eisner or Frank Wells were in the park. I'm sure. Yeah. I have. <laughs> I have a story about driving Frank Wells on the omnibus that I've completely really? forgot about. It was after a it was after a candlelight and Frank and his party were up on the patio outside of Walt's apartment on Main Street watching about twenty of them watching candlelight from up there. And then after candlelight they were gonna go to Club thirty three. So when they were ready, we had the omnibus parked back there, and they hopped on the omnibus, and we drove them down and around and behind the jungle. And I f- figured out a way to to back up the omnibus. And there's a back stairway entrance into Club 33 that goes up really to the kitchen, and got the bus almost backed up to right there. And then my job was to uh, come back in about an hour and a half and drive them back to the backside of Main Street. So I got to drive Frank Wells for, oh, you know, three minutes each way. <laughs> well, that's more than a lot of people can yeah. say. There's a couple other things that the Main Street vehicles would get involved in some private Club 33 parties where the uh, back in the days when the park would close at 6 on the weekdays, there would be private parties inside Club 33 after park hours. Well, the guests would all meet in and have cocktails or hors d'oeuvres at a ballroom on the side of the Disneyland Hotel. And then at about 7 o'clock, after the park had been cleared, we'd drive a, usually the omnibus, or two omnibuses, depending on how big the crowd was, we'd drive the omnibus over to the ballroom across the street, pick up the guests, drive them back. And, And some of these nights, it was kind of, it was kind of cool because it'd be winter time, and you'd see these people dressed up in all these really nice clothes for this really nice reception. The women with their hair done in here were doing 20 miles an hour across the street, and it would it would it would get really cold and windy out. But then we'd drive them in and drive them up Main Street and take the left through Frontierland and swing around to the front uh, to the front of the street right in front of Club 33 back it in there and park it and there's uh there's a couple of infamous stories and I never had this happen to me but where the parking you had to leave the the bus in gear cuz that was 
kind of a bit of a slope running down to the rivers of America. And if the parking brake would slip, the bus would start to roll away. Oh, yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> so, so we'd do those Club 33 parties. Yeah, once a month somebody would get that shift, and it was it was also one of my favorite things to do. And I, because you were in the park at night, and nobody else was in there. The the nighttime cleaning crews wouldn't come in until midnight. There was just a few security guards and a few people still finishing up stuff from the day before. But ten o'clock at night, it'd be you and a radio walking around Main Street or walking into Adventureland, or I'd go off into Fantasyland. And I just had I just had to have the radio on me, and when they were ready to go, be ready to get back over there to the bus. But it was really eerie and quiet. You could really hear a whole bunch of the music, and you could really hear the park at that at that time of night. And there was nobody cleaning. Yeah, just not much going on at all. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was really kind of eerie and pretty all at the same time. All the lights are on, all the atmosphere music's going, and it was kind of really cool. Yeah, it sounds like it. So it wasn't necessarily like a, an early morning thing where usually all the music and everything was off. Everything was going. You were just one of the few people in the park getting to experience it, right? Yeah, they'd leave everything everything going because the, the overnight crews were going to come in at 10 to 11 o'clock at night to start cleaning and doing all the maintenance stuff and get the park ready by 6 a.m. for... Yeah, for the opening shifts to come in, or uh, it was just kind of quiet. And if they knew that there was a party over at Club 33, they'd keep any maintenance or anything that was going on on the other side of the park. So the river was just sitting there doing the river, doing what the river does, and <laughs> all the lights were still on, waiting for the waiting for the electricians to come to replace light bulbs and check on all the bulbs. And it was. Uh, yeah, it, it was really, really kind of cool just to be there and nobody to tell you where to go or what to do. Just wander around. Oh, that sounds terrific. Wow. And that all goes back to the variety of stuff that Main, that Main Street Attractions had to do. Uh, yeah, that's, I had no idea. That, that's a, I, probably the widest variety of anybody that I've talked to anyway. At the at the time, the supervisor that was on duty for Main Street Attractions was in charge of Main Street Attractions guest services and the and the the ticket entrance. Uh, they were on the radio. Their call signal was center stage, and that's that was really what set the tone for that area. Was it was the center of the stage? Yeah, it's a very apt description. <laughs> The other favorite story of mine that goes back to Main Street Vehicles was uh, right around the the filming of the State Fair commercial, which so that had to be August of '87. I'm on the omnibus and driving the bus, and I get these two young kids, this little girl and this and her younger brother, nine and six years old and they hop on the bus and I ask them if they want to sit up in front with me and oh yeah sure okay and their parents are sitting on the park bench and, and they they said should we come with I said no I'll bring them back so yeah I, I drive them <laughs> up and do the spiel and then they stay on the bus and they come back and 
parents are still sitting there. Do you want to go again? Yeah, we want to go again. Okay. So I go back up and come. Anyway, they stayed on the bus with me for like six or seven trips. I mean, we yeah, I got talking to them and everything. They were a family, mm-hmm. a family from Houston, Texas, and they were at Disneyland for a week's vacation. And that was like their second day. And apparently the little girl had a crush on me. And here I am all you know, 19, 19 years old and you know, 20 years old, and there's this little nine-year-old girl and her brother. The next day I'm out in the parking lot working the hotel tram, driving back and forth, and I told them, I said, you won't find me on the on the bus tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll be out in the parking lot driving the hotel tram. They weren't even staying at the Disneyland Hotel, and they came out to ride the tram with me back and forth like six or seven times because the little girl won. <laughs> so... Yeah, the next uh, couple of days later, I tell them, how about if I meet you back in the park and you know, I'll show you some of the little secrets of, you know, the little secrets of Disneyland. And to shorten the story so you don't have to do four episodes of a podcast, <laughs> uh, we ended up exchanging phone numbers and keeping in contact with each other. They came out to the park twice a year. There was one year they came out during Christmas and Santa Claus magically had all their Christmas presents delivered to our house. So they came to our house for Christmas morning, and the kids' presents were there. And it was just a, it was just amazing how Santa Claus knew that. So we determined that Santa Claus and Mickey Mouse knew each other, and they figured course. that out. And uh, when I got engaged, I sent out an engagement announcement, and they were afraid. The parents were afraid to tell their daughter that. I had gotten engaged, and that so I wasn't supposed to say anything to her until they figured out the right time to break it to her. Um, they came out two times a year. I mean, literally saw them twice a year, and we'd have dinner together, we'd visit, and then uh, about six, seven years ago, I was the surprise guest at this little girl's wedding. Uh, wow. Her father called me and said, look, Jamie's getting married. Yeah, you want to you want to come out for the wedding? I said, sure, I'd love to be there. And I said, okay, but I'm not going to tell anybody who's going to be there. So her dad had when they did the uh, the seating chart for the tables. Right there was her dad's name, and then right next to her dad was Ernest Marsh. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was the uh, the code name for my table spot and she didn't expect it so now you know, now I've gone all the way from this little nine year old girl who gave me some uh, you know went to the candy store and bought me some little candy candy sticks as a thank you gift for one of their trips to and now I see her with her two kids and her husband and we've gone and the, the, the son's married and now her parents are hanging out with my kids at, at uh, pin trading events and Stuff like that in Florida, so, and all that from one little uh, one little ride on the uh, omnibus down Main Street. Oh, that's great! That is a great story. And for the people who don't know why I was laughing, the Ernest Marsh is the name of one of the tr- uh, the engines on the Disneyland Railroad. Yeah. So there's the connection for people who are like, "Why is that funny?" Yeah. One of the steam engines is coming to your wedding. <laughs> We've cleared a path. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Don't worry. He he only eats coal and drinks water. That's right. 
Wow. That that's a really great story. But I got to dance with her at her wedding. And then at my wedding, I had no idea how to dance. And we were getting, we got married in 1990 uh, in the middle of the summer. And I had no idea how to dance. So the experts that I knew that gave me dance lessons were two of the, uh, two of the ladies that were the dancers in Cinderella's ball in the, uh, in the electrical parade. So in between in between the nine o'clock parade and the eleven o'clock parade, I went back there and they taught me how to do the basic whatever waltz step that they were doing in the parade, except in one in one square. So the the <laughs> wedding dance that we did at my wedding was actually the same dance that the ballroom people, the ballroom dancers were doing in the Main Street Electrical Parade. Oh, how cool! That's great. I love and that. And it's the only dance I know. Well, if you can only know one, that's a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I understand that after working at Disneyland, you were involved with something pretty special with a Disney legend. What was that? Yeah, the Disneyland Alumni Club was started by Van France and a couple other folks from Disneyland that were uh, retirees from Disneyland. And the idea was that even though you've worked here and you've been part of the magic, you're always part of the magic. Uh, and Van was the founder and at that point the professor emeritus of the Disney University. Uh, mm-hmm. Van was hired directly by uh, by Walt to write the initial training manuals for every Disneyland cast member in 1955 and it's really van france's model of the disney university that this disney university that we have now is based off of and that mcdonald's hamburger university is based off of and it it was really the evolution of the new employee or cast member training procedure and after I was on the board of the alumni club as it was trying to get started in 1990 and 91 and 92, and it was just by mail and by word of mouth. And they had the little, essentially, it was a social, it was a social networking group before Facebook. Okay. In the group of people that were members of the alumni club, you had dentists, doctors, lawyers, dog walkers. Uh, retired teachers. You had people that were in it just for the social aspect. You had people in it that were involved in the networking aspect of it. But leading the whole thing was Van France, who was uh, really essential to creating to to creating Walt's dream of a park that is filled with people that are actual people. Mm-hmm. And that was my second time of meeting somebody who really had a whole bunch of exposure to what it was like working with and working directly for Walt. <laughs> Van said that that he was worried about the expenses of these uh, big posters that he wanted to have made for the initial training plans. And Walt said, don't worry about that. I've got artists to make them and I've got Roy to get me the money. <laughs> true on both counts yeah. so you tell me what you want to make it the best and we'll we'll get it through and van has a uh had a great love for the park and van was also the first of two people that i've met personally that have a window on main street 
That's right. Who's the other one that you've met? Well, uh, let's put it this way. I I know Alice Davis because my dad, and this goes way back, and probably my first love and exposure of, to Disney was that my dad was one of the first graduating classes of the California Institute of the Arts, better known as Cal Arts, which was a West Coast art school funded by the Disney family. Uh, so in that initial in that initial group of people that were involved in getting the college going, uh, my dad somewhere he keeps telling me that there's a slide that's in black and white of John Hinch and Mark Davis over at our house for a meeting of the original Cal Arts alumni board from 1974-75, and I'm there with them. Uh, wow. I'm a little tiny guy. <laughs> um, really, the, f- the first time I really fell in love with Disneyland, I think, was because my dad had because of who the people that he'd met working at Cal Arts, he'd been hired to do some sound for a couple of special events and performers that were coming in. And as a sound mixer, he was at the uh, old Tomorrowland stage, which is where Space Mountain is now and where the where uh, the Magic Eye Theater is, where Captain EO was. It was an open-air stage. And it was during a time when I think uh, my we were really strapped, and my dad took the job for the summer, for the season, and we had no place for me really to stay because my mom was working, and there was a little baby sister that was, but dad took me to Disneyland with him six or seven of the days, and we didn't, I didn't have any ticket books, but my thing was I was you know, probably seven years old, eight years old, and I was supposed to check in with Dad in between shows and make sure I was okay, and I got to know some of the cast members in the area, and they'd let me ride on the people mover as many times as I wanted to. But one of the girls that was in the show that I ended up getting a crush on this girl, and this here I am, instead of being crushed on by a nine-year-old, now I'm the eight, seven, eight-year-old getting a crush on this girl that was in the... It was a show that was part of the Mike Curb congregation, which was a singing group of all these kids. And they had like this nine, ten-year-old girl in there that I thought was just the cutest little girl I'd ever seen, and I had a crush on her. And she was like, you know, much older than I am. Uh, but after, <laughs> I still remember this to to this day. She gave me a kiss on the cheek, and I remember her name, and I remembered how excited I got because her name was Kathy Coleman. And Kathy went on to be the daughter in the Land of the Lost TV show. Okay. Uh, but that was wow. That was really my first, uh, my first real love of being at Disneyland was just this really cool place where these cute girls are. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then my dad was hired and brought back to mix sound a couple other times for uh, uh, back in the days when they had the big bands that came in for at the at Carnation Plaza, uh, Count Basie's orchestra had him come back and mix the sound for them and a couple others that really liked the way he did the sound. But hmm. And then just after I left Disneyland, my sister decided to go down there and get a job. <laughs> got to keep it going in the family. That's why you got to get your son into the college program. Yeah, that and then we get him, we get cast member discounts while he's down there. Right. Well, of course. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. keep in mind, when I was working at Disneyland, uh, 
there was a whole big hubbub when the uh, they switched away from the tickets to the one price fits all, and then they pushed the tickets up to 19.95, and everybody was worried that that was the end of Disneyland. Who would pay 20 bucks to come in here for the day? <laughs> wow. Yeah. 20 bucks for the day. I think an annual pass was $180 a year, something like that. And who would pay that money? Parking was $2 because I got to work at the toll booths occasionally. Mm-hmm. The only thing fun that ever happened at the toll booths was when friends were kidnapping a friend as a surprise and they'd pull up and they'd be waving at you, Shh, don't say anything, don't say anything. <laughs> and and in the back seat would be this guy that's blindfolded. <laughs> And you, you know exactly they were kidnapping somebody for their birthday or something like that, and they were taking them to Disneyland. They didn't want them to know. Right. What did you say in cases like that? You obviously couldn't say welcome to Disneyland, so did you just say hi? Or No, you didn't say anything. You just put up two fingers and wave, you know, ah. show the ticket, and then the money would be exchanged, and away they went. So. Okay. There was absolutely no uh, welcome to Disneyland. It's $2 for parking. And now... Parking's fourteen, fifteen dollars. The spaces are much prettier than they now than they were back then. True, yeah. <laughs> okay, well I kinda sidetracked you from talking about Van France, so we can go back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Van was just a just a great character with a ton of stories. He was finishing up writing his book, A Window on Main Street, and my son was born in ninety two and we had a uh, we had a board meeting like a couple months after my son was born in March, and Van brought me a copy of his book and autographed it for me as my first Father's Day present. Oh, wow. Still have it. Still, it's Boy, is it dog-eared from reading it back and forth. Really good read. Really, dis- It's really just kind of a journal of his ideas and his thoughts and tells the story in line, but really does a really good job of telling his story. Yeah, obviously there's stuff that he left out that's part of being in any business, but uh, after reading his book and talking to him, he had a great appreciation for the for the original trees that are in the central plaza. Because those those trees were original of the park and he got to you know, he got to walk by them every morning on his way to work and and uh, he really enjoyed walking by those trees in the central plaza and watching them grow bigger and get prettier. And, and as he said, every time I'd walk by them, they were getting better looking and I was getting older. <laughs> <laughs> Just a character. Um, and, of course, Van passed away eight, ten years ago now. Something like that. I think it was 99, if I remember right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's been several years. Yeah. Van was one of those originals. And he hired uh, he hired Dick Nunes to be his assistant and got him a job in the mailroom when he didn't need an assistant anymore. And Dick went on to be run, to run all of the all of Walt Disney parks and resorts. <laughs> <laughs> so he felt fairly secure about his job, knowing that his former gopher, who he was very good to when he was above him, was now very high above him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Goes to show you to make sure that you're good to the people who work for you, because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. No, just be good to everybody, and it makes it easier. There you go. That's an even better piece of advice. <laughs> then you don't have to worry about it. Or as I always tell people, I'm uh, not only am I the leading expert on my own opinion, 
but I don't lie because I have a hard enough time remembering the truth. <laughs> That's right. As long as you don't lie, you don't have to have as good a memory. Yeah. You mentioned Disney World, and I've got a couple of great memories of Disney World and some of the couple of the cast members there that stick out, and I'd love to share those stories. Uh, Please. Because I get, I get to experience the parks from the inside and then as a guest and then from the inside and then as a guest again. And I did, I did go through that standard detox period of a couple of years where I really was, after working there, really needed to cleanse myself of, of the, uh, of the Disney-ness and I couldn't go there without being critical of what I saw and what was going on. And then when I had kids of my own, it was like I was, I was seeing the parks through a whole new, whole new set of eyes. Um, but since we moved to the East Coast, we started going to Disney World, and uh, when I was when I was still when I was dating my then girlfriend and now wife, uh, we took an employee or cast member tour to Disney World in January of '88, I think. Uh, they put us up at the old uh, at the old Lake Buena Vista villas, which are now part of uh, I don't know what they got. They're part of Saratoga Springs or something. They're in that area. But one of my vivid memories was taking a picture of my girlfriend, and if you can picture where the uh, Hall of the Presidents is in Liberty Square, as you come around the front of that. There's a little gift shop, and then on the right side of that, it's kind of like an emergency entrance into the theater or an emergency exit from the theater. There's a fake uh, a fake porch that's got a couple of rocking chairs on it. Mm-hmm. And I took a picture of her sitting in one of the rocking chairs on this fake porch. And the, there's a door that goes to nowhere, but there's just this porch with the two rocking chairs. In 1988, I took a picture of her just sitting in in the rocking chair, smiling and you know, wearing a you know, wearing a Mickey Mouse T-shirt or a sweatshirt or something like that. I was able to go back to Disney World for the first time with my two kids at that point in 2002 or three, and we went back to that same porch and it was still there with two rocking chairs. So now I have a picture of my wife with our little baby, you know, six-year-old daughter at that time on her lap and my son who was probably nine or ten by then sitting in the other rocking chair. And the chairs hadn't changed, the building hadn't changed, just the people sitting on the rocking chairs had changed. And it was, to me, that's that's the absolute beauty of the of the Disney parks is that you go there and yeah, some things change, but some things stay the same. And I can look and see that you know, 20 years earlier, there was just, there was the beginning of a family and now there's a family there. The other thing that happened in particular that was kind of fun was, uh, and my daughter was diagnosed with diabetes six years ago. She's an insulin dependent type one diabetic. And we had an Easter week, a week-long trip to Disney World planned where we had done the dining plan and I had made dinner reservations and everything. And this this was seven years ago, six years ago. Um, So two and a half weeks before we leave for the trip, she's in the hospital and we're now learning about having to give her shots and test her blood sugar and do all this stuff and we have no idea what's going on. And she looks at me in the hospital bed and says that, 
well, I guess I just ruined our trip to Disney World, didn't I? Mm. I said, oh, no. No, we're still going. We're not going to let this stop us. We're still going. Um, once we got a handle, yeah, once we got a little bit of an idea of what we were doing and understood diabetes and how to and how to take care of her and how to monitor her, with about a week to go before the trip, I got on the phone to Disney World and started talking to, and I wish I could remember her name, but it was one of the Walt Disney World reservationists and told her what was going on, and she said, okay, no problem, that's fine, we'll we'll understand, we'll get you, we'll make sure that you have a refrigerator in your room to keep the insulin cool, Uh, we'll make sure that your room is closer to the front in case you need to get to, you know, get to your car, get to the parking lot or whatever, we'll make sure that that's good and comfortable for you. At every one of the fine dining restaurants that we had made reservations for, they made sure and had a specific meal prepared just for her that she liked and that we knew how to count the carbs and do the doses for. And in most cases, the chef would come out of the kitchen and deliver her special meal just for her. Um, And it just brought a whole new light to what can and what Disney does for families that have kids that have issues or people that have you know, more than the standard normal issues. Um, we have what we, I call my daughter Bobo, uh, but we have the Bobo rule that happened at uh, at the Land Pavilion where we went in there and we were trying to find her a sugar, we were trying to find her a good dessert for her treat for the day. And they didn't have her favorite Mickey head ice cream bars that we knew exactly what the carbs were and how to dose for it. But they did have a sugar-free brownie where they had taken their price sticker and put it over the nutrition information on the brownie. And I'm trying to peel it back and I can't get the sticker off. And and So they go into the back and they find one that had not been stickered yet so that I could see the carbs. And I talked to I grabbed one of the managers after everybody got sat down and eating. And I said, look, if you look at all this packaged food, the people that are most interested in the packaged food are the people that have dietary issues and they want to see the calories and the carbs and they want to see the nutritional information on this stuff. Well, if you shrink the size of the barcode sticker and just rotate it so that it's clear so that people can see it, and there was like six or seven items that I pointed out to her, I said it would make it a whole lot easier for all of us. And she said, wow, that's that's a great idea. I'd never thought of it. We came back to the land two days later, went back to the same place to get her the same food because we knew the carb ratios and everything, and she liked it, and she wanted that brownie again, and we looked at the brownie and they had changed the size of the sticker and rotated and moved them all. Wow. In two days they had adopted the uh, the, the Bobo rule to the packaged food in the land pavilion. Uh, but that's the, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you find only at a Disney park. That's for sure. And then my daughter who uh, never, you know, the kids, I wasn't married when I was working at Disneyland. My daughter got to finally hear me kind of do my thing when we got on the back of the, uh, we got on the Disney World Railroad and the conductor at the back of the train will always try to find a little kid to say all aboard and my daughter was back there so she looked at, she looked at my daughter and held out the microphone to her and do you want to say all aboard and then the train will leave and my daughter said no I don't want to but my dad used to be a train conductor, he can do it. 
<laughs> the lady looked at me and said, really? I said, yeah, I was a conductor at Disneyland for four years. She said, well, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, that's fine, but I don't need the microphone. And I stood up on the train and belted it out just like I used to, except for not quite as long as I could hold it. But my, do- <laughs> my daughter looked up at me and she, with these big eyes, was like, oh, my God, that noise came out of your mouth? Wow, Dad. <laughs> Yeah, she'd never heard me do it in full voice and never had a reason to. It's not like I sit at home and yell all aboard all the time. Right. <laughs> uh but she got to you know, she got to hear that and that was just from a you know, just from a cast member that was trying to make a moment for a child and made the moment for the child indirectly through the through the big child sitting next to her. Mhm. And yeah. And since then we've you know, we've tried to we try to get down to Disney World as much as often, but I'm hoping the schedules will slow down and we'll get back again. Absolutely. Get out to Disneyland for sure. Yeah, much farther commute for you now, but worth it, I think. <laughs> yeah, especially with all your history here. Yeah, and it's Disneyland still feels it, it feels like home. It smells right, it sounds right, it's laid out correctly. The Magic Kingdom's nice, but it's just not the same to me. Pirates of the Caribbean is supposed to have the little boats going by you in the queue, not climbing into this Spanish fort. So I don't know. It's just it's it's home. I I know exactly what you mean. Even though I just haven't worked there, I I know what you mean. Yeah, everything's where it's supposed to be. Right. Now, during the time that you were working there, and I'm going to guess this is probably pretty early on in that time, do you remember a specific? circumstance or a moment or anything that you remember thinking I'm doing something really special here the first moment when you're out in the when you're out in the crowd and you're in your costume and you've got your name tag on and everybody automatically thinks you're an expert even though you're brand new and you have no clue my name is Al and I'm Joyce and we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. .talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make make it a a Mickey Mickey day. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Brian Levine for being my guest, and to you for listening. Come back next time for the third and final part. Now, if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and you'd like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime, 24 hours a day. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let's talk. Like I mentioned last week, that's how I connected with Brian. 
If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, maybe something like what Brian shared towards the end of this part of the interview today, or if you've had any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you, too. Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Now, this is my final reminder about the Indiegogo campaign to help pay for the publishing expenses for my new book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. It ends October 22nd, and I cannot extend that deadline or do another one. So please, go to storiesofthemagic.com slash faithmk or follow the link in the show notes for this episode and be a part of making this book a reality. I'm offering some great rewards, and as little as $5 in support gets your name in the book. And that's pretty cool, right? But you know, I've got things from actually $1 all the way up to $1,000 and beyond, so you can support it at any level you want to. Again, please go to storiesofthemagic.com slash faithmk or follow the link in the show notes for this episode to watch a video about me and the book, see what rewards I'm offering, and even read some of my early endorsements. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. The more reviews that the show has, uh, the better it shows up in lists and searches, so it's easier for people to find. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. And while you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show however you can. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic, too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.